Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hanson. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by a best-selling author, business mentor, and CEO, Adam Markell. Adam has spent the past 10 years training hundreds of thousands of people how to live a life of purpose, passion, and freedom. He's the CEO of More Love Media, a company dedicated to empowering individuals and businesses to thrive in a world where constant disruption is the new normal. He's also the author of Pivot, The Art and Science of Reinventing Your Career and Life. He's given a popular TED Talk, has been interviewed by The Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and Forbes, and is the host of the Conscious Pivot podcast. So Adam, thank you for taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you guys for having me on the show. I'm really excited about being here. Yeah, we were really looking forward to it. And a great deal of your recent work is captured by the title of your book, Pivot, which kind of focuses on change and reinvention of various kinds. And so we were wondering, as a way of kind of introducing yourself to the audience, if you could share maybe two pivots that you've experienced in your own life, maybe one that happened a little while ago and one that happened more recently. Okay, well, maybe we should start with the basketball court. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a basketball fan. I grew up in New York, which is torture for basketball fans, by the way. I bring that up not so much to relive my childhood pain, even though though that's always a lot of fun. It's because the analogy of pivot comes from basketball. It was where Mm. I first started to think about what is a pivot and how is what I'm going through in my life actually resemble what I learned on the basketball court, which was that if you imagine dribbling a ball on that court and you stop the dribble, what normally happens is the defense sort of collapses around you and you become very defensive. There's not a lot you can do. But in that instance, you can still pivot on one foot legally, turn yourself 360 degrees around on one foot to see more of the court. So it's actually puts you in a position to to create vision, to create vision on the court. And I thought, geez, that's such a simple way to explain how it is that in our lives, we sometimes feel stuck or we get into a defensive position and then don't know what we can do. Mm-hmm. And the answer was, hey, I'll just turn 360 degrees around <laughs> or, or do whatever I have to do to create more vision. So the first big pivot, I would say for me, sort of major life pivot came when I was waking up in the morning, day after day, like everybody does, just getting ready to go to work. And I'd start, and I'll even put myself in that state of mind and, and even that physiology at the moment. I would put my feet on the floor. I would kind of rest my hands on my knees. I'd sit at the edge of the bed. My wife was sleeping. It was dark out. My kids were upstairs sleeping as well. And I would just sit there feeling what I can only look back on now and and call anxiety, angst, dread Mm. about what I was going to be doing that day. And I was a lawyer. I had gone to law school some years earlier and I was earning a lot of money. I was doing what I had intended to do, which was to break, break free of some of the, the restrictions of my childhood and, and give myself and our kids more options. And all that was working well, except I was miserable. Mm. And I didn't have a lot of language for it. I just knew that I was upset. I was angry. I was a litigator. I was a litigation attorney. So I had a lot of <laughs> I had outlets for my anger, let's put it that way. And I did that day after day. I'd wake up with my hands on my knees. I just kind of use a bit of an expletive in my own mind about, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, blank. And I didn't know what to do. And and finally, I remember coming home late from work, which was a pretty regular occurrence because I was a a workaholic, 70, 80 hour a week worker. And I walked into the house. It was, we were living in New Jersey at the time. And I remember it being cold and rainy outside. I walked in dripping 
And I could tell the moment I caught my wife's eyes that I had done it again. She gave me the look. Some of us know what that look is. And, and it was a look of disappointment because I missed the kids going to sleep again. I'd missed them for dinner. I'd said night after night, I'll, you know, on a regular basis, I'll be home for dinner. I'll be home for dinner. We were living in New Jersey, but my office was in Manhattan. And routinely, I'd say I'd be home for dinner and I'd show up after dinner was over. And I walked right up to her and I said, if I keep doing what I'm doing, you're going to be a widow. And we both took a breath. I and mean, before we hit the record button, we were actually, Rick and I were chatting a little bit about the power of breathing. And in that moment where I said that to her, and that's kind of a devastating thing when you think about it to hear. She didn't remind me in that moment. She didn't remind me that we had two houses and cars and four kids. She simply took a deep breath and I took a deep breath. And she looked at me and she said, we'll figure it out. And that was the, the beginning moment of my pivot. That was the moment where we both realized that I didn't have to have a midlife crisis. We had the option to plan a midlife calling instead. Mm. That, was, that was, I'd say, the, the first moment where I became consciously aware of the, of the choice that I had to not just simply accept the status quo, which is what I was doing for 18 years as an attorney. I knew for five, six years into it that it wasn't my calling to do it, but just that idea that you keep doing what you got to do to be responsible. So that, that's my first major pivot mm-hmm. and led to the what ultimately became a manuscript that turned into this book called Pivot. Yeah, so it's really interesting that you're saying that there, Adam, because one of the kind of major sub-themes, in my opinion, of our podcast in general is the difference between conscious choices and unconscious choices, where a lot of the time as we're living our lives, we're making a lot of unconscious choices. As you're describing here, you're kind of letting the flow of your past kind of dictate your future. You went to a certain kind of school, which put you in a certain kind of job and landed you in a certain kind of life. But then there was a day where you sort of, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of woke up and went, wait a second here, I can make a more active choice. So what were some of the things that you think kind of contributed to that moment, for lack of a better way of putting it, where you just walked in the door and you were like, wait, this is the time where something has to change or everything's going to go off the rails for me? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think there were a lot of symptoms. I'm not sure that we always are paying attention to the symptoms, whereas I think oh, for sure. Spencer Johnson would have put it, right? It's the writing on the wall, you know, mm. from the Who Moved My Cheese book. And there was a lot of writing on the wall I just wasn't paying attention to. So mm. what are some of the symptoms I recall, which some people can probably identify with even, in, even as they're watching or listening to this? I was angry a lot of the time. I was easy to anger. I was tired a lot of the time. I wasn't sleeping well. I was taking Ambien to go to sleep. Most nights, Mm. I would wake up in the middle of the night and be kind of filled with a bit of worry about stuff I didn't get done or things that had to be done. So I had this just sort of a running on the wheel, the proverbial rat on the wheel. I just remember feeling dead, not a lot of emotion, emotional range, other than love for my kids. I felt incredibly grateful to have four healthy kids, to be in a marriage that to this day is, is the best thing in my life. We'll be, we'll be married 30 years this summer. So what a blessing that is. All of those things to be grateful for. And yet, other than the time when I spent with my kids and I was there with them and there with my wife and, and in that loving dad or husband role, I was ready to get in a fight with somebody like in a heartbeat. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> my hair was falling out. So physically, I could see signs of the stress or signs of that exhaustion showing up. So I think there's a lot of signs that we sometimes are ignoring, or I was ignoring, let's say, that led me to that moment where I walked in the door and I just like 
dump that that bomb on my wife. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a really wonderful reflection. So, Adam, what about pivots that are thrust upon us surprisingly? Right, you walk into your doctor for your annual checkup. Everything seems fine, and the person coughs and says what a doctor once said to me: "The words you never want to hear." That doesn't look good. Some kind of event that occurs that's thrust upon people. How do you see people productively pivoting after they kind of dust themselves off and start to look around and figure out what to do? And I'm also thinking of interpersonal situations where suddenly people you thought you could trust, you realize they're betraying you or they will never talk with you again. Like, I didn't see that coming. You just gave me the chills. Yeah. Yeah. So what helps people deal with pivots that are shocking, surprising, even devastating? Well, the first thing is is for sure breathing. I mean, the, the breathing is a big deal. And, and, and we laugh about <laughs> That's it. That's good. But how often it is that we react to something without being fully present and just not being there in the moment, even when, the, you know, the, the proverbial, you know, crap is hitting the fan. In that moment, it's a great, it's a great time for breath. And a breath physiologically, and I know Ricky probably have much more to say about this than, than I do. Physiologically, it changes your capacity to address whatever it is that's coming when you do take some deep breaths. It's the equivalent of being the eye of the storm. And, and we have to do that. And then there's a four-step process that we use for handling things that blindside us. And uh, so I'll, I'll quickly tell you what the four things is, and then we can unpack any of them we want. That'd be great, yeah. But the first part is that we have to reframe. So very quickly, we have to reframe the situation that's happening because more often than not, the way we frame it, the story we tell about it is usually that it's devastating. It's a catastrophe. I remember my dad was in group therapy when I was a kid and he came home and he was talking about Albert Ellis. And that was the therapist who's very famous for, I think, something called rational emotive therapy. And he and we use this term, there's no, there's no catastrophes. You're catastrophizing something. So we do that. It's a default mode for a lot of us to just assume the worst. So where is the opportunity in that situation? That's the classic question that we ask, that my wife asked me a lot as a catalyst for reframing something. And the question is, what is the creative opportunity? So somebody leaves you, somebody dies, your business goes bust. I know it sounds crazy, but you sit there, be present with it, breathe, and ask yourself as best you can, what's the creative opportunity right now? And you're going to get answers for sure. They may not be the ones you're looking for, but they could very well. So you reframe. That's number one. Number two is you have to mine for the meaning in the situation. So what's the meaning in a situation? I think back to my grandmother who's passed now, but she used to make these little little cakes that she called little gems. And, and they had, I remember asking her, these tiny little cakes had this massive, massive flavor in them. And I would take a bite and I would ask her, okay, I got to understand how it is that this little cake has such a huge value. She said, little things, Adam, can have a big impact in life. And I think this idea of mining for the meaning, mining for the wisdom in situations is really key when you're, when you're faced with one of those blind sides. So number one, we've got to reframe. Number two, we've got to mine for meaning. Number three, we've got to look at the vision, our current vision. And more often than not, we've got to revise that vision. It's no different than if you're driving and you've got your GPS on, right? <laughs> and you make a wrong turn. Does your GPS say, hey, idiot, you moron. I can't. Every single time you do this, it's just like your dad said. <laughs> you keep making the same mistake. 
Does your GPS speak to you that way? No, it just simply says redirecting, right? It, it just says redirecting and it finds a new path, a new way. So the third piece is to, to revision. I have a special human potential GPS. So when I make the wrong turn, <laughs> it starts out in this really soothing voice. It says, you're going to be fine, sweetie. You really are because there's only the present moment wherever you are. And by the way, turn left at the light. That's my GPS. Having driven with Rick before, this is not true. But this is a lovely idea. And if somebody wants to invent this product, we will happily give them the idea for it. I want somebody with a French accent or, or, or a very <laughs> that's right, a very calm Brit, you know, like <laughs> so, so we definitely have to redirect ourselves and create a new vision. And then the last piece of this is that we have to develop resilience. Mm-hmm. And resilience is not about endurance. And I think the, the research that, that I've done and the research I've read is, is all clear about this now, finally. Yeah. This is not about being Rocky Balboa. We love mm-hmm. Rocky Balboa. I mean, because in the first Rocky which I think they made eight, but in the first one, you know, Rocky gets hit, he gets up, he gets hit, he gets up and, and, you know, he wins our hearts, but he loses the fight in the end. So this is not about endurance or, or even getting the night out award at work. This is about recovery. Resilience comes from recovery, just like high performance athletes know, Olympic athletes, professional athletes know that their best performance comes when they've not only worked out and practiced and performed, but they've also recovered. Without the recovery, it doesn't matter. So those four things are great, really, for any kind of pivoting, including, obviously, when you're shocked and surprised. I think that's great. About resilience, so I just want to first point out to, you know, I've done a lot of rock climbing, and my friends would say to me, basically, Hansen always climbs best right after he's fallen off. You know, to your point, which is really great. That's really true. And I think that's a useful thing to remember. So here's a question for you. You're talking about practices, things people can do in the moment. That's great. But what are the traits, the enduring kind of stable attributes of people that enable them to be resilient or enable them to pivot well? What are the key things? I know you help people develop these traits. What are your top one, two, three, four, five? The, again, the research supports that. In fact, it was an HBR article from the early 2000s where they compared high-performance athletes and high-performance executives. And what they found was that they all had one thing in common, and that was they had rituals for recovery. And, and this is the first time we're using the word rituals, which is great, because to me, a ritual is a conscious habit. So as we were talking about things that are unconscious, these are the things you do by design. And so all those folks had rituals in in the four areas that we would say create holistic resilience, mental, emotional, physical, of course, and and even spiritual. And so spirit, when we think about where we get out of balance or out of harmony with our spirit, it's like you're doing something all day long that is out of alignment with your highest values. So let's say for me, in that instance, when I was a lawyer, If I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have had to pivot out of the law. I'm glad I did. I would never change that. I would have had other avenues in that moment. The third piece in the other order is that a vision. So a person who's resilient is somebody naturally is able to pivot their vision. They don't look at something and say, you know, just because my business failed, I'll never be able to own a business. I forget who it was that that first started to talk about pervasiveness of thinking. But it's this idea that you have a, a challenge and your vision has to change. There are some people who can never get over the fact that their marriage ended or that their business went bust. 
or they or they they didn't get accepted to medical school or they couldn't be a dancer. So traits of resilient people, they pivot their vision, they create new visions. They have an openness about them. There's a funny term I learned when I was studying the Rorschach. So ink blots, these fuzzy clouds. And, and the whole thing about a Rorschach test is not what do you see, but why do you see what you see? Mm-hmm. And what you'll see with some people is they get sucked into some little detail in the shading of the blot. And that sucks them in in such a way that they lose sight of everything around it. And this is a very concrete way of describing this term, stimulus bound. And you're talking about people who get stimulus bound to that old way of doing things or the fact that they were, let's say, left or their business didn't work or their book didn't sell. They get trapped there, stuck to it like a fly to fly paper. And anyway, that's a very powerful term. And I think a lot of where people get stuck is they are stimulus bound. And it's really important to kind of keep widening your view so you don't get sucked into that really small thing, which to me is a way to completely affirm and support what you're saying here, Adam. That visual of a fly getting stuck to fly papers is one I'll remember. That's really, yeah, yeah. just as if it's a great image for what it feels like. The other two things we talked about earlier, which is that a trait of a resilient person, somebody who reframes a situation, they find the creative opportunities for things. And then obviously the, the last trait, that at least that we, we talk about in resilience, is that people find meaning in their life situations. Mm. It's just not meaningless. Whatever's going, it's that expression, you know, everything happens for a reason. And then we like to add the comma and this little phrase, which is that, and that reason is there to serve. Because when people would say to me, something happens for a reason or everything, I go, well, what's the reason? I mean, don't tell me everything happens for a reason. That doesn't feel good. But it does feel different when you understand that it's somehow all of it's there to serve you, even if you can't see it in the moment. So Adam, we've been talking here about the traits of people who pivot really well, the traits that contribute to resilience, how we can respond to a situation that we didn't see coming. All of this really builds up the pivot, quote unquote, as this kind of fundamentally positive thing, a a tool that somebody can use inside of their life, right? I was doing a little bit of reflecting on that before we started this conversation. And it sort of was maybe slightly at odds with this kind of view that many people have of the grass is always greener on the other side, right? And I think that it could be kind of natural when we're looking at our current life to view it relatively pessimistically and view the whole slew of opportunities that exist outside of us more optimistically. So I'm wondering how you would kind of bring those two things together and answer maybe the fundamental question of like, how can we know when a pivot's good for us? Or how can we know when we're just sort of viewing the grass as always greener? Wow, that is, <laughs> Hanson, that's a great question. Well, thank you. Well, I'll say this. The longer you live, the longer you realize, I believe, I'm making a generalization here. So I'm going to turn into my statement. The longer I live, the longer I realize the importance of trusting your instincts, trusting yourself. And so a great element of any of these pivots, and I do agree, it's, it's not a pejorative term in my book. It used to be because pivot was like a tech term for your business model didn't work, you better pivot, right? So it's this idea of, is the pivot good for me? Well, I, I would say on a, as a general rule, all pivots are good for us. Every, every part of our life experience is good for us. Mm. We just don't always know how it is good for us, but everything is nourishment to our soul. Now we're going off into philosophy, but, <laughs> but it is our choice to choose a philosophy. So if we want to 
adopt the philosophy that everything is nourishment for ourselves. And it's simply a matter of then I'm not in resistance to it because resistance when it comes to change is very, very difficult. We know a lot of people, we have choices, right? We can, we can resist it. We can, you know, we can ignore it. We can bury our head in the sand of it, or we can embrace change. Embracing is a very different thing. It's a different feeling and it's a different energy. So to me, part of how you will know if a pivot is, is good for you is A, to already know ahead of time at least to want to take the position, the philosophy, the philosophical position, that it's good for me no matter what. Adam, are you the kind of person who jumps too quickly or stays too long? Wow. I've been both. Huh. I've been both. And in this idea that there's a sweet spot, sort of a timing, right? And, and that I do believe that life is about timing. There's a time to jump. And there's a time not to jump. I can say that every bad decision I've made, when I look back on it, was a good decision for where I currently am. Martin Luther King said that all the stairs line up perfectly when, you, when you're at the top of the staircase looking back down. But when you were taking those steps in the dark, it was a lot of fear. It was a lot of uncertainty. You just didn't know how one thing would, would lead to another. But the sequence of those things looks perfect when you get to the top. Why can't we forward pace that mindset for ourselves to know in this moment that a year from now, everything will have lined up perfectly. Five years from now, everything will have lined up perfectly. Is that, is that being Pollyanna? I don't think so. And that's how I've lived most of my life. And that's worked out well. Is that, I don't know if that, you call that a self-fulfilling prophecy or something else. <laughs> But it's worked out. Well, it helps to be a wildly talented person with a good heart, like you. That's the kind. That's the kindest thing I've, I've anybody said to me <laughs> all, <laughs> all day, true. for sure. <laughs> Thank that's you. True. Yeah. But I think there's something there in that that is worth reflecting on. That I've thought many times to kind of build on your point about unconscious bias and so forth. As quote from Tanahasi Coates, if I don't mispronounce his name too badly. He says, privilege means not having to take things into account. So I walk down a dark street. I'm a old dude. I don't worry about being sexually assaulted. All right. I don't have to take that into account, unlike so many people who do. And I just find myself reflecting here on this very deep topic of pivoting, which people could engage, I think, superficially and glibly, not the way you engage it, of course, but it, it could be engaged in that way. And I think actually in this topic, it's like an opening into a lot of very, very deep subjects, not philosophically, but personally and psychologically, intimately and soulfully. So with regard to this notion of pivoting, I think that sometimes the people who are pivot advocates have the privilege of being wildly talented with a good heart, let's say, as well as male, white, middle-class, professionally trained, fill in the blanks. And other people are grappling with the need to make pivots, but they're not so wildly resourced from the get-go. They're more vulnerable and they're more dependent on resources around themselves. And I just kind of want to open this up, I guess, to an inquiry into how can people who are maybe less resourced internally, even just based on genetics and whatnot, realize that to help themselves pivot, they need to reach out for resources around them to build relationships or, or call on their relationships to then enable a pivot that's successful. 
I don't know, maybe I went off on the deep end here, but what do you make of all that? No, that's at the risk of it being self-serving to refer to the book, (laughs) Pivot, I'll do it. There's a section where we talk about your pivot people, which is really what you're discussing. And there's a couple of kinds of pivot people. There are the the peers, the peer group that you can get together with. And it's important to have a peer group that you can get together in in a, a different way than just going out and having a drink. I think it was Napoleon Hill that defined a mastermind as two or more people that get together in harmony with a specific purpose. So yeah, we get together with my buddy at the bar, we're getting together, we're in harmony, totally cool. But our purpose is to drink or maybe just to talk and you know laugh and all, and that's fine. But when your purpose is to plan something, and that's what Napoleon Hill was talking about, that so many people lack the ability to plan their future. They drift is what he called it. And, and that came out in his later outwitting the devil, which didn't get published for, I don't know how many years, not until 2011. It was written in, I think, 1938. But part of why it wasn't published earlier was that his wife believed if it was published, he'd he'd have been assassinated because he calls a lot of public institutions to the mat for why it is that people have this tendency to drift in their lives. We won't digress there. Other other than to say that getting together is is a key ingredient if your goal and your purpose in getting together is to plan something, to create plans for your future, for your business, for your life, all those kinds of things. You've got to, I think, let people in your life know what's happening in your life. So the stakeholders, the people who really care about you, whoever those people are, instead of being ashamed or embarrassed or not wanting to worry those people, I know I battle with that. I didn't want to worry my wife. I didn't want to worry my kids or my parents who were alive. I didn't want to worry them that, things weren't going you know, perfectly and that I wanted to make a change. So they're the stakeholders and getting with them and speaking to them is, is incredibly powerful. And the last thing, and, and I'll ask you guys if this has been your experience with, as well, that it's important to find mentors. And the finding of a mentor is not as difficult as it sounds because often it just requires asking someone who's maybe traveled a similar path or, or has just done something that you think is respectable, they're living a good life, whatever it might be, to ask them to, to be a mentor to you in some way. And so have, have both of you had the experience of being mentored or being mentors to others? Yeah, short for short answer, yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's a, it's a huge aspect of what allows somebody to be successful. And a lot of what we're really kind of talking about here, sort of peripherally dancing around, but also addressing directly, is what allows you to sustain and be successful inside of a moment of major change in your life, right? Fundamentally, that's the topic. Because there's sort of a thought that a lot of people are able to make a major change for a day, but can you make a major change for a week, a month, a year, and so on? And that is a lot more challenging than just kind of getting into the act of change itself, which can often feel exhilarating and exciting and really interesting for a short period of time. But then the question is, can you sustain? And I think that's so much of these things that we're pointing to here, the idea of finding allies, finding mentors, reaching out to people inside of your life, looking for the helpers, to borrow a phrase, is absolutely part of what makes that change sustainable. Forrest, have you ever seen dominoes lined up? Have you ever done? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So you imagine some of these, a group of people <laughs> setting up a million dollar dominoes and then you know tipping one and then seeing them all go down at a certain point. So that to me is a great physical demonstration of what momentum looks like. And when you were talking about sustainability, and, and I, there's a few words that come up from sustainability, longevity, and, and momentum. 
Mm-hmm. And, and the dominoes are a great ex- demonstration of that. But what is not often known about dominoes is that one domino not just doesn't only have the capacity to knock over another domino, but another domino that's slightly bigger than itself. If you can imagine a domino that's even three quarters of an inch high knocking over another domino that's about one and a half times its size. And, and this has been demonstrated, so I'm, I've seen this done, which is pretty cool. So momentum isn't just about the ability to take the next step and sustain, as you're talking about, sustain your pivot, but it allows you to take a slightly bigger step each time. Mm. And that's what's really remarkable to me. One step at a time will, will take you very far over time. Yeah, absolutely. We're running out of time here just to kind of bring us to a close. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a child, as a young adult, uh, somebody on the East Coast, you're considering going into your career. <laughs> before and I, starting law school. Before law okay, school. Before law and, school. And hey, I understand that with the benefit of hindsight, all the stairs line up. But if you could go back in time and talk to that person, what would you want to tell them? Relax. T- take a little, you know, not so much as with a grain of salt because it's, it's serious. It's all important. But relax your body. Relax into the experience, whatever that experience feels like. I wish I knew that. Like Forrest, I, I was watching your body language. I'm not calling you out here. I just, <laughs> I was just watching your body language when I'm describing that whole staircase analogy. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not. I, I I felt that you were open and receptive to it, mm-hmm. but I also felt like, nah, maybe not so much. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and so I'm I'm curious if you don't mind my turning the question yeah, yeah, sure. back on you because you're a millennial, right? I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm I think I'm technically like an old millennial or something like that. I'm All a crotchety right. millennial. It's a compliment to be on the outer edge of that. I wish I was. <laughs> Millennials are pivoting, if you will, every 18 months out of a job. That's mm-hmm. about it. So you yeah. guys are are much more adept at that or at least open to it than than a lot of us are. So I, I want to get you, I want to get your take on it. Yeah, which part of it? Just kind of like the the openness to the change of experience? Yeah, I mean, because there's a lot of people who don't understand or saying they don't understand millennials. Oh, yeah, sure. In the, in the corporate space. And mm-hmm. I'm always challenging that because I have millennial age kids. And, and I love the fact that they don't want to settle, that they're not mm-hmm. willing to just settle for mediocrity. Because I feel like there's lots of generations before that settled for mediocrity and that didn't get them very far. Yeah. Some, you know, years ago, it got you a gold watch and a, and a rocking chair. Mm-hmm. And the more recent generations don't even get the gold watch, the pension and the rocking chair. So I think you guys have it a little, a little above us in that area. I want to just get a sense of, you know, what, it, what is it about that, that generation that is open to the pivoting so much more than uh, Gen Xers or baby boomers or what have it's a great question. I think it's kind of an essential cultural question that you're asking right now. And I wish I had a perfect answer to it. My own kind of instinct around it is that I think largely due to the, as you were describing earlier, the rate of change increasing over time, we were born into and raised in an environment that had very little stability associated with it. You know, the the type of computer you used changed every two years. The type of program you used online on social media changed every two years. Then you have the changing of your own experience. More people going to college, big change every four years, whatever it might be. And I think that it just created a, a comfort with that kind of a lifestyle that's really different from the mentality of not to be extremely broadly generalizing here and a little bit stereotyping, but somebody who goes to high school and then they go and they work on their family's 
farm for basically the rest of their life. That leads to a certain kind of mentality. And it's a very radically different mentality when you're seeped in that, that openness to kind of constant change. I also think, honestly, that so much of it is kind of a social media generation thing where we constantly see the highlight reels of everyone else's lives. Yes. And so we're constantly comparing ourselves to that highlight reel. So there's always this feeling of shortness from that, frankly, this feeling that, wow, all these other people have it so good. Why can't I have it that good? And this creates kind of a restlessness inside to mm. sort of constantly want to push to change, to get that thing that a lot of people, I think, on a deep level kind of constantly feel is out of reach for them. And so some combination of those two things, I think, have created a real cultural condition where change is the new normal. And I think yes. that that has really beautiful things associated with it, some of which you pointed to. And I think it has some enormous problems associated with it around happiness and fulfillment. And can you be truly fulfilled in your life if your life is changing every two years? I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I think it's a big question that we're kind of grappling with right now. Yeah, thank you for that. And I also, just to close a loop, on the question that, that you asked, Rick, and it's a difficult question, so I wasn't trying to avoid it. I just realized now we didn't really answer it, which is mm -hmm. for folks that are not, let's say, experiencing privilege or haven't had a life of, quote, privilege, whatever that means, is it, is it more difficult to pivot? Do they have, are they under-resourced in that area? I think they're under-resourced in every area. I mean, that's economically and in a lot, and with education and, and with options. And so for folks that, if, where that resonates, whether you're a parent of somebody and you're, you're struggling to just put food on the table right now and you're listening to this and don't know what to do, or you're somebody that came out of that situation and doesn't know what to do. I really feel that the, the great leveler is in reading. I mean, and again, going back to something that I'm shocked that I'm even going to say this, but when we were kids, they used to have this thing, it's called reading is fundamental, right? <laughs> and I didn't read a book. I wouldn't read a book. I resisted it until I got to college. I didn't. There's so much great information. It doesn't have to be in a book, but it's in, in, there's just access to great information about these topics. And I think that, that reading is a, is a great leveler. You know, access to information has made it possible for anybody with no education, with no economic support to work, create something, even as an entrepreneur in the world, that you would never have been able to create a hundred years ago mm -hmm. when it was father to son or, or, you know, the good old boy network exclusively. You didn't, you didn't get an Ivy league degree. You weren't going to get past a certain point or something like that. So. No, I think that's a wonderful reflection and a great piece of advice and a really nice place to kind of close our episode for today. So Adam, thank you again so much for doing this. It was really wonderful. Thank you both. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Adam Markell, the author of Pivot. We began the podcast episode by focusing on Adam's personal experience and his own story, how he hit a moment in his life where he realized that he needed to make a major change or things would quickly start to go off the rails. We then explored the topic of how somebody can know when a pivot might be right for them, including some of the symptoms that start to crop up in our lives when we're headed down a road that isn't necessarily great for us. We then explored a variety of topics related to pivoting well, including some of the inner traits of people who tend to do well with changes inside of their lives and what we can do to really lay the groundwork for those changes inside of ourselves. Toward the end of the podcast, we moved from kind of internal strengths to more of a mindset approach 
what are some of the ways that we can hold change in our minds in order to make our lives more accepting of it. So that's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it. If you would leave a rating and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, it really does help us out and it's a great way to let other people know about what we're doing here. I'd also like to remind you about Dr. Rick Hansen's new online program, Neurodharma. If you're interested in learning more about the program, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's episode. And if you enter the code BEINGWELL in all caps at checkout, you'll get 10% off the purchase price. So until next time, thanks for listening. 